sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. We are continuing in our series from 2 Corinthians, The Call to Church Action. This is part 22. Our title, The Efficiency of Stewardship. Our text, 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 9, 5. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Let us bow together in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Will you turn with me to the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians? And our section for study this morning is chapter 8, 16 through chapter 9, verse 5. God's call to church action. And we're in this center section, which is God's call to Christian stewardship. And last week we were thinking of the ethics of giving. Paul both announces and applies these principles with solemn and challenging application. But now in the process of logical development, he deals with a matter which is so important, especially to a local church. It is the consideration and implementation of this whole matter of stewardship amongst its officers and membership. In effect, the apostle is saying that there is no point in exhorting God's people to give if that generosity and liberality is not ethically and efficiently handled. Church members and particularly officers and leaders are responsible to God as well as to man for honesty in the handling of money. Not only honesty, but efficiency in the distribution of it. Now this is a subject now not often dealt with or handled in public services, but it's wonderful when one is pursuing a series of studies in an expository style, not to jump over certain passages, but to fair face them squarely and honestly. And since we believe in all the word of God for all the people of God, there is no passage of scripture which we try to evade or avoid in the course of the ministry of the word of God. And so our theme this morning is the efficiency of stewardship. And I want us to notice two main aspects. First, the motivation of efficiency, and then the ministration of efficiency in stewardship. Turn with me then to chapter 8 and look again at the verses that are before us. The motivation of efficient stewardship. Our key verse here is providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Chapter 8 and verse 21. Providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. With these words, Paul confronts his readers with a twofold motivation which would determine not only Christian giving, but also Christian living. I cannot, whether the subject is stewardship or service, whether it's giving or living, here is the supreme motivation for everything we do. First, the glory of God. Notice again, providing for honest things not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. 
but first of all in the sight of the Lord. He makes this manifestly clear when he says, this grace is administered by us to the glory of the Lord. Look at verse 19. This grace is administered by us to the glory of the Lord. Already he's touched upon this motivation in his first letter, where you remember in our previous studies we came across this verse, whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Anything less than fulfilling the will of God to the glory of God is defined as sin in the New Testament. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Anything that detracts from the glory of God, anything that falls short of the glory of God in our thinking, in our speaking, in our living, in our giving, in our serving, anything that detracts from the glory of God constitutes sin. For whatsoever is not a faith is sin. What is more, the Bible makes it very clear that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Therefore, we're to glorify God in a number of ways. I want you to jot these down, either mentally or on paper, and think them over. First of all, we're to glorify God by worshipful praise. Psalm 50, 23, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. If I were to come and ask you why you've come to this sanctuary this morning, I wonder what your answer would be. Is it because it's a habit that you have developed over the years? Is it because of a reputation you want to maintain? Is it because some friend brought you along? Or is it because down deep in your heart, you know that there is nothing which glorifies God more than the praise of his people and that throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, God has commanded that his people should gather together for the offering of praise. There is one thing to kneel down in the solitude and silence of my own room and to give him praise. It's another thing to praise him in my work, as we shall see in a moment. But supremely, God calls his people to public worship and praise. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. When a choir or a congregation sing a great hymn and interpret our faith in song, I just imagine, yes, I believe with biblical foundation, our God in heaven rejoicing to receive the praise of his people because the scripture says, he it is who inhabiteth, inhabiteth the praises of Israel. We glorify God then in worshipful praise. But we glorify God by consistent fruit bearing. In John 15 and verse 8 we read, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. This is not only the fruit of service, but first and foremost the fruit of character. What we are is far more important than what we do. Indeed, if what we are doesn't glorify him, then what we do is of no value whatsoever, carries no moral significance. We've been called to bear fruit, to reveal Christ in our lives as the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance, which is self-control. 
We glorify God by worshipful praise. We glorify God by consistent fruit-bearing. We glorify God by our spiritual unity. In Romans 15 and verse 6 we read, That ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing which makes the heart of God leap with joy, we speak reverently, than the gathering together in unity of his own people. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. There it is that God pours out the oil of the Spirit. There it is that God distills the dew of the Spirit. There it is that God commands the blessing from heaven, even life forevermore, that we may glorify God in spiritual unity. We're to glorify God by our entire dedication. For you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In a few moments, we shall be gathering around the table of our Lord. We shall be taking that bread that bespeaks the giving of his body, the wine that tells of the pouring out of his life. And as we see him giving himself, we shall hear the word of God saying to us afresh, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual mode of worship. That's glory to God. Glorifying him in our entire dedication. But last, though not least, we're to glorify God by our good works. Our Savior said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. And in the smallest detail of our lives, God looks for a reflection of his glory. The very way in which we do our work should be as a light shining in a dark place. And it's into this category that I believe is included this matter of giving. Only in this way shall we provide for honest things in the sight of the Lord. The giving of our money in public worship or in any other way is not an appendage, as it were, to service. It is at the very heart of service. All giving issues from the heart of God. The very nature of God is to give and forgive. And when the mighty Spirit of God begets in us that desire to give and to give hilariously, we glorify God. We let our light shine. The story is told of an occasion when the late Queen Mary was walking in the vicinity of Balmoral Castle. She strolled rather far, and as the rain came down, she stopped at a little cottage and asked to borrow an umbrella. The woman in question did not recognize the queen, so decided to give the stranger an umbrella with a broken rib. The next morning, a man in gold braid appeared at the cottage door, and with a smiling face said, the queen asked me to thank you for lending the umbrella. The woman at the cottage was dumbfounded. And with hot tears flowing down her face, she ran back into her home and she said, what an opportunity I missed. Why didn't I give the queen my best? Do you know this, that our Lord Jesus Christ disguises himself when he asks his people for service? Sometimes he disguises himself as someone in prison. Sometimes he disguises himself 
as a person in rags. Sometimes he disguises himself as a stranger asking for a drink of water. Sometimes he disguises himself as a call of the Macedonian man, come over and help. Sometimes he disguises himself in the appeal of radio or of television or of some other means of evangelism. Won't it be terrible when we get to heaven and discover that we loaned him an umbrella with a broken rim? So let us see to it that our motivation of efficient giving be the best, the best for the glory of God. But there is another aspect here, and on this we labor this morning because it's the most neglected side of our subject. There is not only the glory of God involved here, but the good of man. Notice again that verse 21, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of man. Now Paul amplifies and explains this in the previous verse where he says in verse 20, avoiding this that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us. Paul recognized how important it was that the contributions of the churches in Macedonia as well as in Corinth for the poor saints in Jerusalem should be handled with scrupulous care so that neither he nor his associates should be liable to the slightest suspicion of misappropriating or mishandling holy funds. And Paul says, whatever happens in this matter of stewardship, let's see to it not only that we glorify God, that's foundational, that's basic, but let's see to it that we also approve ourselves honestly before men, providing that which is honest. Let there never be a suspicion on our characters let there never be a suspicion on our efficiency in handling what our holy funds. What an example the apostle has left us. Not only for our day, but for all time. It's so easy for Christian people to suppose that as long as they have unclouded consciences regarding their acts before God, they shouldn't worry too much about how the funds are handled. The temptation comes to every fellowship of God's people to minimize the importance of making it transparently clear before all others that we are absolutely efficient in the handling of the funds of a church. As one great theologian has put it, it is a foolish pride which leads to a disregard of public opinion. It is a foolish pride which leads to a disregard of public opinion. Both Old and New Testaments corroborate this vital principle. Solomon says in the Proverbs, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And in the epistle to the Romans, Paul says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Thus we see that the efficiency of stewardship must ever be governed by this twofold motivation. The glory of God, the good of man, and an honesty of handling such money or stewardship that nobody has the slightest suspicion of misappropriation or misdistribution. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan recalls that when the Salvation Army started its work, General William Booth was charged with dishonesty. People said that all the property was in his name and that he at any time might have coveted that property and turned it into money for his own purposes. 
That was the criticism of the work when that great and mighty movement was launched by that holy man, General William Booth. However, from the very beginning, General Booth was careful to publish his accounts, and in the process of the years, all the criticism died. Some of you remember, as I do, the beginning of the ministry of Dr. Billy Graham. Both in this country and overseas, he was accused of conducting his crusades for personal gains. But wisely and scripturally, he saw to it that reputable accountants in every city made a public accounting of every penny that was taken in and every penny that was dispersed. What was more, he insisted on putting himself on salary in common with all the members of his team. Since those days, less and less criticism has been leveled against the evangelist whom God has so manifestly used in our time. Many other instances could be cited to illustrate this basic principle of the church of providing for honest things in the sight of men as well as in the sight of God. And I have sympathy with any member of any church who holds back from giving generously and liberally unless that person is absolutely convinced that the officers of the church, the deacons of the church, handle the funds of the church efficiently for the glory of God. But our second consideration has to do with the ministration of efficient stewardship. Not the motivation now, but the ministration. Paul has dealt with the motivation. What is it? Twofold. The glory of God. The good of man. Now the ministration of those funds. Now he says, avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us. Again, chapter 8 and verse 20. No one in the Corinthian church could ever accuse Paul of being impracticable or inefficient. Right through his two epistles, he was forever relating the highest concept of theology to the smallest details of the running of a church. This is particularly true of the verses we're now studying. He's just dealt with the solemn theme of the ethics of giving. And we dealt with that last week. Now he proceeds to discuss the efficiency of giving. In a word, he says that the motivation of giving must be linked with the ministration of giving. And here we come to a very interesting aspect of our subject. What do we mean by the ministration of efficient stewardship? Well, first of all, it involves the engagement of efficient men. The engagement of efficient men. Look at verses 16 and 18, please. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And verse 22 and again, we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things. Now, no one can study these verses without being deeply impressed with the care with which Paul handles the matter of the engagement of efficient men. Let's look at these men. Here is the first one. Titus was obviously his own choice. And as we shall see a little later in verse 23, he was a partner and a fellow helper of Paul. The other two unnamed brethren were also appointees of the churches that were giving so liberally in Macedonia. Let us take a few moments to look at them a bit more closely. Titus, though not mentioned in the Acts, was one of the nearest men 
to the heart of Paul with the exception of possibly Timothy. He had considerable trust in this young man. As we've seen already in these studies, he refers to him again and again as his representative in a church situation that Paul himself felt he couldn't deal with at one point. He calls him my partner and fellow helper. He'd already sent him to Corinth, and in fact, he had been responsible for the delicate task of smoothing over the tense situation which had grown up, which had grown up between Paul and his converts. He was therefore a man of great tact, a forceful character, and in this context, he possessed, as you'll notice, wonderful administrative abilities. He was supremely an administrator. Well, now, that's a tremendous thing to have in the church. And Paul says, on this matter of efficiency and stewardship, here's my first choice. Titus, a pastoral administrator. Now, although his primary ministry in the church at Corinth was a spiritual one, it is clear from the reading of chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, if you glance down, that he was also responsible for organizing the money-raising program of the church. So Paul asked him to return, bearing this very letter, to complete the task of collecting the necessary financial assistance for the saints in poverty-stricken Jerusalem. So much then for Titus. Now look at the second man. He's not named. You'll find him, though, in verse 18. The second brother is mentioned here. Many believe that he could have been Barnabas. Others say John Mark. Some believe that he was Dr. Luke himself. Still others think that he might have been Apollos. But what is said about him is very beautiful and commendable. Look at that verse 18. He was evidently well known throughout all the churches of Macedonia and, of course, in Corinth itself. And he's called a praiseworthy evangelist. Consider what Paul says about him. And we have sent the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. Here was a flaming evangelist, but a man also who understood something about money, as we shall see in a moment. A man who's obviously not only famous for his preaching of the gospel, for his passion for souls, but had a discernment and an ability in the handling of money. Now one can imagine his children in the faith, not only in the assemblies across Macedonia, but also in the church at Corinth saying, well, here is somebody we can trust. We've heard him preach the gospel. We've seen him follow through on evangelism. We've seen how he can handle his converts. We've also seen how scrupulous and strict he is in the matter of money. Look at the third man. He's mentioned in verse 22. This third brother referred to is also unnamed. But once again, he has the highest commendation from the apostle. Look at what Paul says. We have oftentimes proved him to be diligent in many things. Now listen to this. One of our great evangelical scholars, W.C.G. Proctor, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians says, if we allow ourselves a little liberty, we may think of this brother as a Christian accountant who allied his accountancy with evangelism. Apparently, the idea behind that word diligence means that he had the mind of an accountant and he could think clearly, methodically, mathematically, and accurately. Now, here is Paul talking about efficiency in stewardship. And we want to summarize the men that he has chosen. 
In Titus, we have a pastoral administrator. In the first unnamed brother, we have a praiseworthy evangelist. In the second unnamed man, we have a proficient accountant. But what is of greatest moment, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that in all these three, we have men of God. No shysters, no charlatans, but men of God. No wonder Paul concludes with this commendation, and I can't imagine anything more wonderful to be said about your life or my life. Some of you men who are in executive and professional positions, you women in the world of the career, or in the running of your homes, or in the life of the church, I can't imagine any words that I would wish to be said about my ministry or your ministry than what Paul says in verses 23 and 24. They are the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Wherefore show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. You imagine, you imagine the Lord Jesus saying of you or of me or the Apostle Paul saying of us all here, you are the glory of Christ. If you want to see the glory of Christ displayed, if you want to see the effulgence and manifestation of his glory, look at that man. Look at that woman. These are the people that Paul determined were going to serve in the ministry of stewardship. Now thoughtful people cannot but agree that here is the ministration of efficiency in giving at its best. This is mad management. This is management at its loftiest. How such teaching shows up the sloppy and slovenly way in which money matters are handled in many of our churches today. The usual democratic procedure of accepting anybody so long as he's elected by the church certainly doesn't tally with the apostolic standard. Let us point out again that these were men who are manifestly spiritual, manifestly mature, manifestly able. And before we leave this point, it is instructive to observe, and I want to emphasize this to you people who come from other churches, as well as our own assembly here this morning, I want to emphasize the important principle which Paul insists on in this very passage. He insists that there be three men, three men, not one, not even two, but three men. In this he was following a scriptural principle which is found both in Old and New Testaments and which Paul particularly emphasizes in the closing chapter of this very second epistle to the Corinthians. What is it? Let me read it. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So we see the utter importance of engaging efficient men for the high and holy task of stewardship in the life of the church, and never depending on one, whoever he is, or two, whoever they are, but three, says the Apostle Paul. And we fail, I believe, in coming to Scripture and choosing what passages we put into practice and neglecting those we feel don't suit our purpose. The Word of God stands for what it says and says for what it stands. May God write these lessons upon our hearts. But now we come to what I feel is a thrilling conclusion to this amazing treatment of the Apostle Paul's. Not only the engagement of efficient men but will you notice here the employment of efficient methods? Already he has said, verse 
10 of chapter 8, Here and I give my advice. Then he adds, For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous that I write to you. And then he says, Yet have I sent the brethren. You know, I paused on those three tremendous statements and I've learned something and I trust you will too. If we think through these three statements, it'll become quickly apparent that the apostles' method of raising money both for local and general needs is clearly delineated. And it isn't my idea now or your idea, your interpretation or mine. It's the clear statement of the Word of God as to what methods God has laid down for the matter of stewardship throughout the entire age of the church. Now, what are they? Here is the first one. First, scriptural indoctrination. Scriptural indoctrination. When Paul says, I will give my advice, he's not offering his own opinion. He is pressing his own exhortation on the basis of sound biblical principles which he has already enunciated through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the essence of all his teaching is best summed up in that word we found, find in his first epistle, chapter 16 and verse 2. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no offerings or collections when I come. Upon the first day of the week, that Sunday, that Sunday, before you ever come to the place of worship, you should kneel in the presence of God and begin to work back over your week and think of that which God has done in your life. Contemplate his prospering hand upon you and recognizing that under grace you can do no less than under law, recognizing that the tithe is a universal principle that runs throughout the word of God, you begin there. And then consider how God has prospered you over and above that and in his presence and before his cross decide what you're to do. So that giving is not a matter of a perfunctory or an emotional thing. Perfunctory because you haven't prepared. Emotional because you've been swayed by the preacher or somebody else. Not a bit of it. Paul says, I don't want any gatherings taken when I come. The very fact that I come and speak to you will emotionally stir you. I want it all to be done on the basis of a theological conviction. I'm doing it because it's right. Not just because of need, not because of pressure, but because it's right. Yes, what Paul says here and elsewhere is that giving to God should be more than an emotional exercise. It should be the consequence of theological conviction. In other words, the very opposite of psychological tricks or personality pressure. Scriptural indoctrination. Scriptural indoctrination. I've said it before in these chapters. I say it again. Anyone who recoils from this subject of giving and its application to life reveals, one, that they're untaught in the scriptures or have become unspiritual in their outlook. For the word of God is so clear about this. Scriptural indoctrination. The second aspect of his method was that of pastoral communication. I tell you, this has been a tremendous comfort to me and all who are wise in God will know why I say this. Pastoral communication. Notice he had written once concerning the collection, 1 Corinthians 16.1, and now he communicates with them again. 
In fact, the two chapters that we have been presently considering are the fullest treatment of the grace of stewardship found anywhere in the whole of the New Testament and indeed in the whole of the Bible. But most of what is written, if you read through chapters 8 and 9 at one sitting, you'll discover that most of what is written is in the form of a pastoral exhortation and therefore is a guide to all those whose task it is to stand behind the pulpit and exhort God's people. And I want to say, as unpopular as it is for a preacher to do it, and as often as it cuts deep into his heart, I can't be faithful to my Bible and speak of some of the great doctrines which are merely mentioned in Scripture and haven't anything like the area of truth given in these two chapters. I say I cannot preach those doctrines without being similarly faithful to passages like chapter 8 and 9 and other passages of the Word of God. Scriptural indoctrination, pastoral communication. So whether by letter or by personal exhortation, the pastor of a church has a divine precedent to follow in challenging Christians to give. We are certainly to trust God to meet all our needs, but we're also to inform his people and to provide them with an opportunity to prove the sincerity of their love. We had a discussion in one of our Bible studies just recently when someone rose to his feet and said, why don't we ask God in faith to give us what we need and leave it there. And then he quoted such men as George Muller and others who acted on that principle. My reply was a very simple one. Though I didn't qualify the life of George Muller or Hudson Taylor or some of these great giants, I could have easily said that there is such a thing as the gift of faith which God gives to certain men. I believe he gave it to George Muller. That's over and above saving faith that's over and above the faith that you and I exercise to walk daily in the path of righteousness. It's a gift of faith which rises beyond the normal requirements of everyday living, even in the spiritual life. And George Muller obviously had that gift, and so did Hudson Taylor. But my reply to the question was simply this. Why didn't Paul kneel down in the quiet and seclusion of some little bedroom and say, O oh God, thou seest the church in Jerusalem suffering. Thou seest the poverty and need. O oh God, open heaven and cause that this need might be met and not mention it to another soul. But this mighty apostle Paul went and he preached it to all the churches throughout Macedonia. He pressed it upon the church at Corinth Indeed, he used the enthusiastic response of Corinth to challenge the churches of Macedonia only to discover that Corinth didn't come through with their pledges and for one whole year hadn't given a dime. And so he writes two chapters to challenge them about their backwardness of having not fulfilled their pledges. I repeat, why didn't Paul just ask for it? Why did he inform God's people? Because I believe the Holy Spirit would teach us certain principles that determine the running of a local church and the work of God throughout this whole age of grace, this age of the church, until his coming again. So there is this matter of scriptural indoctrination. There is this point of pastoral communication. Remember that when it falls to my lot to speak on this subject. But that's not all. The most important thing I want to say in this context 
is this third point. The last aspect of the apostolic method was that of official administration. He says, yet have I sent the brethren. Now we've already examined these three men and their eminent suitability for the task to which they were committed. But what I particularly want you to perceive is that they had an official mandate. Not only did Paul send them, but their churches sent them. And these chosen men were to assume that because of the scriptural teaching, because of the pastoral communication, they had every right to go to Corinth and to gather the offerings, to check the amount, to prepare the offerings for transportation, and then to take them to Jerusalem. In effect, their task was to see that individual members, as well as the church corporate, were following through on their stewardship responsibility. Thank God for every local church that has a board of deacons of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and of wisdom, who are able not only to challenge the membership concerning the matter of giving, but to give adequate advice on all matters related to Christian stewardship. It is a sad church, not to say an impossible task, when the responsibility is entirely left to the pastor. So we have seen that in money matters, as in all other aspects of the church, we're expected to do all things decently and in order. And let us bear in mind that true motivation of efficient giving is to be matched by careful ministration in efficient giving. And those three men had every right to go to every single member of the church at Corinth and say, what have you done? You've heard the biblical teaching. You've had the pastoral communication. Now we have a mandate by the vote to the church to come and find out what have you done and to see that they followed through. Only as we follow the word of God shall we have the kind of results that I believe characterize a truly spiritual and mature church. But at the very heart of efficiency, beloved, is faithfulness. And it costs to be faithful. As someone has pointed out, it cost Abraham the yielding up of his only son to be faithful. It cost Esther the risking of her precious life to be faithful. It cost Daniel the peril of a den of lions to be faithful. It cost Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the trial of a fiery furnace to be faithful. It cost Stephen death by stoning to be faithful. It cost Peter death by crucifixion to be faithful. It cost Paul death by a Roman sword to be faithful. Does it cost you anything to be faithful to your Lord and King? Remember that at the very heart of efficiency, is this one word, faithfulness. Are you prepared to be faithful even unto death? If so, I pray you'll mean these words that I prayed in my own study early this morning. Make me faithful, Lord, I pray, in the stewardship of grace. Make me faithful every day, humbly serving in my place. Keep me faithful by thy power when I'm tempted to give in. Keep me faithful hour by hour, pure and free from every sin. Call me faithful in that day when I stand before thy throne. Call me faithful, Lord, I pray, and the glory be thine own. This is David Olford. 
You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.